word in Luke 15 is lost. So I want to discuss that for just a moment because I think we've been reminded in these last few days what it really means to be lost, to not know the answers of some things that are coming. And I want to discuss that a little more with you because we have forgotten, those of us who have been a part of the church for any length of time, really what it means to be lost. Look back before you knew the Lord as your, your personal Savior, had, before you had a real relationship with Him. Do you remember what those days were like? For me, I was eight. I'm 51 now. That's a long time ago. So it's a long time to remember what it was like to be lost. And yet there are people all around us who are looking for some answers. And they're lost. And so I want to discuss what that means to be lost just a, a little closer. And really we're answering the question from this text, not only what it means to be lost and how to, how to get found, but also how to help others be found in the Lord and really what brings joy to the Lord. We'll get back to that at the very end. So let's get right into it. Now again, the context. Verse, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So all of what Jesus is about to say in these stories is in that context. You've got two different groups of people, the tax collectors and the sinners. Now you know, remember the tax collectors are the... And these sinners are, are seen by society as the scum of the earth. The tax collectors are, are turncoats who have uh, betrayed their own people. They have uh, uh, somehow obtained the, the franchises to collect taxes and they're cheating their own people and they're in cahoots uh, with the hated Romans. And so people didn't then or people even now, as tax season is right here, really, really like tax collectors. In fact, they, in that day, they despised them. A tax collector couldn't give uh, witness in a Jewish court. Uh, a tax collector could not even give alms in a synagogue. They wouldn't accept them because it was dirty money. And so they were completely shut out from religious life. And yet, here's Jesus hanging out, eating with, which was a, a way of accepting him. A way of saying, I'll listen, I'll converse, I'll teach, I'll associate, I'll, I'll relate to the lowest of the low. And then these Pharisees and scribes come along and say, hey, what's he doing? Why is he doing this? Don't you, doesn't he know that those folks make him unclean? Doesn't he know how despicable those, those people are? Why was he doing that? No one else would. See, as we talk about lost here, we got two groups right from the back in the context, those tax collectors and sinners who were far from God and didn't have a hope through religion to get close to him. Jesus wants them close to himself and, of course, close to the Father. And then these Pharisees and and scribes who think they're so close to God because they're keeping all the rules and they're good people, they're religious people, they know the Scriptures, they're performing religiously, and yet, they're the furthest from God because they think they don't need Him anymore. Weird scenario. 
Jesus tells them the story. Let's look at the first one. So as we, as we walk through these, think about this thing. Who or what is lost in the story that he tells? And we're going to look at several scenes here. And then ask, um, ask yourself, how did they get lost? And more importantly, how did they get found? And then what happens after they get found? All right? So ask yourself, who or what's lost? How did they get lost? How did they get found? And then what? So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, by the way, that word home, guess what it is? Oikos. When he comes back to his people. He calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Really, it, it should be translated who think they need no repentance because all of us, and including the Pharisees and scribes he's talking to, need repentance. And so what... What he is identifying here is, a, is one who has been found. And he's connecting the, the one that's lost to the, the sinners and the tax collectors, but he's also reminding those who he's answering to, the Pharisees and the scribes with this story, that they too are lost. So here's the question. What's lost in the, in the story? Story number one, the what? Sheep. The sheep is lost. And, and how does the sheep get found? The what? The shepherd. The shepherd just waits around and says, okay, we're going to give that sheep a, a few minutes and we're going to see if he comes home. Or, or the shepherd does what? The shepherd goes seeking the lost sheep. Leaves the 99, probably safe with other shepherds around there. But he's looking for the one who's far from God. That's the picture. Now, See, in that day, the, the Jewish people would have understood that God accepts and forgives a repentant sinner who comes to Him. But they would have no concept of a God who goes seeking, looking for them. And that's what Jesus is saying. Isn't that what He's identifying uh, with and how He's really telling us about all of His purpose? Remember, Luke's going to say in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came... To seek and to save what? Those who are lost. That which is lost. And so what he's showing through this picture is that we have a God who not only forgives the lost, but he goes looking for the lost. The second story is like that. Now, remember, the second story is like the first. And, and we're going to cover what happens after that. After the one is found, who is found, what happens? Because it's the, it's the same. It's uh, synonymous here. Verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost 
And just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, so, in the first story, the sheep is lost, and the sheep gets lost by what? Just wandering off. The shepherd goes seeking that sheep, and when the shepherd finds the sheep, he puts it on his shoulders. Beautiful picture of what the Lord does for us. Because isn't that what happens? The Lord takes the burden of us, our sin, upon Himself. He takes us home. And then, when they get home, they rejoice and they celebrate and they throw a party. And the same happens with the woman here. She loses. What's lost in the second story? A coin. Now, remember, the first one, it was one in a hundred. It's getting a little more valuable, isn't it? Now it's one in ten that is lost. And so the, probably, it, this is a, a dowry. The, the only money this woman would have if her marriage ever dissolved, very important, it's not a lot of money. It's probably just a day's wage that's lost here. But it's a lot to her. And so she sweeps the house and she wants to, to find it. And she goes after it. And by the way, this is kind of a kind of a a way that Jesus teaches that it, the the Pharisees are going to dismiss. They they'll dismiss that shepherd because they have nothing to do with. They're kind of low on the totem pole. Remember the the shepherds were the first one who heard about Jesus. They, they're low. They're down low on the social totem pole. The woman they would not identify with the woman either. But it gets to the point where in the in the third story, they'll they'll identify greatly with. Uh, the Father, in just a little bit. But before we get there, just think about the coin that is found by the woman. And how does the coin get lost? We don't know. Maybe carelessness. Maybe a mistake. Uh, we, we don't know for sure, but it's different than the, than the sheep. We know that. can't just wander off by itself, right? I kind of look at this as, parents, this is, this is huge. Our, our children and other folks in our oikos are, end, up, end up lost just because we don't pay enough attention to the important things in life. We don't give the Lord priority in our lives. We, we are distracted by other things, and we don't train them up in the ways of the Lord. And if we don't do those things, then somehow, some way, they're lost. But it's also a reminder that at some point, all of us have been like the sheep and like the coin. We all start out as lost sinners. Remember what Isaiah said? We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Jesus intends for us to identify uh, with the lost folks. He wants everybody in this scene, the tax collectors, the Pharisees, all of them, to identify with lostness. But he also wants to show us there's a way to get found. And then there's something that happens after we're found. After we're saved. So let's look at it, at the next scene. And this is pretty familiar story, so we're going to run through this, but I also want you to think clearly and maybe look at this in a in new light here. 
he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said, er, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pod that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Stop there for just a moment. You've seen this over and over again. You know, you've probably heard. This, this son's request, it's crazy. It's ludicrous to ask for his inheritance before his father was even dead. It was like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I care more about your money than about our relationship. Give me what is mine. There's a, an old kind of outline for the, of this that, that we think about sometimes. He is sick of home, of being at home. And, and so when you, you think about what, what makes a young person, a, a young son like this, sick, then you, th you think about the, um, the sick of homeness. I don't know if you've gone through this. I've gone through this with my own, own sons. You know, they think that at some point they think they know how life should go and they think they can make their own decisions and they think they're pretty, pretty brilliant and all of that. And, and they... Um, I think they know when they should be able to go to bed or go get up or, or come in or whatever it is. Maybe that's where this guy is. This younger son. He's sick of home. He wants to light out on his own. He wants some adventure. He's only young once, and, and so he's going to go find whatever it is he's looking for. And more. Takes his inheritance, packs his bag, heads off to the far country. And then something happens. There's a great change. It goes from being really fun to being really desperate. There's a point when he has all this money, he can buy his friends, can he? You know, he can give them whatever he wants. He can buy himself and make himself look good. And he can do all of what he wants there. And then the money runs out and so do the friends and the fun. He has to hire himself out and it's very humbling. He has to hire himself out to a, to a Gentile. He glues into, it's literally, he glues himself to a, a Gentile and he has to feed the pigs, which you know, a Jewish young boy, that's, that's the most disgusting thing he could do. And not only that, but in the midst of that disgust, he decides he wants to eat the pig slop because he has nothing else to eat. 
Now, that, that's gross in our day. It was gross in that day, too. And he comes to him himself. He comes to his senses. He starts rehearsing this thing. Hey, you know, my dad at home, and in his mind, he, he goes from being sick of home to being just sick and miserable to being homesick for his father. He didn't realize how good he had it when he was at home. He starts to think about all that. And then he heads home. He recites this, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just tire me. Just tire me. It's better if you just tire me. And that's where we see the father. We call the, this younger son the prodigal son. You know what prodigal means? I've, I've told you that before. Prodigal means one who spends lavishly, and he did. He squandered all of his father's wealth, probably a third of the estate. The, the older son, by the way, would have gotten two-thirds. He'd get the double portion. But he squanders that in wild living. When I was uh, first at, at Oldham pastoring there, I preached on this, this text, and I'd, uh, I hadn't been there two weeks. And I said, if you, if you sow wild oats, I, and I intended to say you'll, you'll reap a, a wild life. And I said, a wild wife. <laughs> and they, they all just looked at me. Did he really say that? I didn't realize I'd said it. And then I said, and we all had a good laugh. But, but that's what, it, what he does. He sows wild oats. And he reaps a wild life. And now he's headed back. He's headed home. Reciting this. And it's really the story not of that prodigal son, that spending lavishly. It's really the story of a prodigal God. A prodigal father. Because look what happens at the end of, of verse 20. That's where we'll pick up. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I wonder what he thought he was going to find when he headed home, ready to humble himself and become his father's, not son, but servant. It's an indication of what the father was doing the whole time the son was gone, is it not? He sees him a long ways off. Can't you imagine he's been scanning the horizon every day hoping that his young son would come home? Can't you imagine that even though the father has granted this crazy request for his inheritance, he has expected and been praying that God would show him how foolish that he, he was, that he would come to his senses, and now God has answered that prayer. And so he doesn't wait for the son to get home, all the way home. He does what was so undignified for an older Jewish man to do. He girds up his loins, he picks up his skirt, basically, and he runs to his son. And he embraces. He's not worried about the coronavirus. He, he's not worried about anything but showing his son how much he loves him and how he's missed him. And his son starts in on, on this recitation that he had, had been going over and over and over in his mind and 
He said, Father, I've sinned against you, heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Stop. He's about to say, remember the rest of that? He's about to say, hire me. Just let me be your servant. And the father will hear nothing of it. But the father, verse 22, said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Not just one in a hundred. Not just one in ten. It's one in two. Real valuable. Not just a possession. Not just lost livestock. Not just a, a coin. Son. Person. Human being. That the Father is full of compassion for. And runs toward. Now, How'd the son get lost? Selfishness. Wanting his own way. Wanting to do things uh, the way he wanted them. He wanted what he wanted when he wanted it. Who finds him? Well, the father doesn't go looking for him. That's the interesting point. As an inanimate object, the coin had to be sought and looked for as, a, as an animal couldn't find their way on. The sheep had to be sought for and God does that. But as a human being, this son had a choice to turn back and go back to what he had experienced with the Father. So it's both. God seeks us and we seek God. And we return to the Father's house, we return to how God created us when we um, surrender ourselves and humble ourselves and realize that God has a, a better plan, the best way to live. And that's what happens with the son. And then, and then what happens? The same thing that happens over the sheep and the coin. They party. They celebrate. He's killed the fattened calf. End the story, right? Lost. When we look at this, text, we see lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Over. Story over? Now really, for those of us who've been in church any length of time, the next scene is for us. Let's look. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother's come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, or his begged him and pleaded with him, come in, come celebrate. And he answered his father, look, not, not exactly a real respectful way to address your father. He said, look, that many years, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. 
Really? Never? Yet, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when, and notice the wording, when this son of yours, not when my brother comes home, not he doesn't want to have anything to do with him, when this son of yours, you know, that's what we do. When one of our kids have misbehaved, then we talk about it among ourselves, Jennifer and I, and we say, what's your son done now? Or what's your daughter done now? We, we don't claim them, right? That's what he's doing. But this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Yeah, we have no knowledge that he actually devoured the property with prostitutes. We know he's been living wildly. But the son, the older son, how does he know that? Did he go check on his little brother in the far country? Probably not. Maybe, maybe that's some secret desire he has in his own life. I don't know. We, that's all speculation. But he is definitely blowing all of this up and is completely angry. And that word for anger is really to be boiling mad. It's like when sap on a hot day comes up in a tree. That's, that's the word there. He's boiling mad over all of this that his father has been so forgiving and so welcoming and so, so generous to his younger brother. His younger brother doesn't deserve that, does he? Not in the story. Isn't that the point? Isn't that what Jesus is trying to convey to the Pharisees and the scribes? That it's not about performance. It's about the Father's grace. It's about the Father's generosity. It's about the Father's love. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours that's a good word for those of us who've been part of the kingdom and part of the church that all of what's the, the fathers all of what the lord is is ours and it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive he was lost and is found now here's the question in that third scenario with the elder brother, who's lost? It's the elder brother. You see, he left the father's heart without ever leaving the farm. The first younger son uh, was involved in, in sins of passion, but this older son is involved in sins of attitude. And that, folks... Let's think about that for just a moment. That's us. If we're not careful, we have so forgotten what it means to be lost that we don't expect lost people to act lost. That we somehow, some way, uh, bring judgment upon them when we don't remember that we were them. That we were found. And, and the sins of the the folks in the pews or the in the seats are not in the seats right now. <laughs> are the sins of gossip and judgmentalism and all sorts of jealousies that happen sometimes when lost people, younger sons, wild ones, do what they do. Do we overstate our 
morality and our goodness. And it is our goodness sometimes a, a hindrance to the Father's heart. Because remember, and this is where, where we'll end. Remember what makes God happy? What brings Him joy? What heaven celebrates? In all of these stories. It's not the elder son attitude who is actually more lost at the end than the prodigal. The one we call the prodigal younger son. He's further from the father's heart. What makes God happy, joyful, and heaven celebrates when lost people get found. And that's our task. In these days, I am praying, and I hope you'll join me, for spiritual awakening. Folks, that happens in small groups with people who trust us family members and work associates and neighbors and people we call boycotts. Don't we want to bring joy to the Father? Don't we want to help heaven celebrate lost sinners who repent and come home? Let's pray together. Father, we trust you're going to use your word to do great things. Lord, thank you for teaching all of us through these stories. Lord, I pray that your message has been conveyed. That we understand that you rejoice when lost sinners are saved and that we get to be a part of that whole process. Use us, Lord, to fulfill your plans, to expand your kingdom, and to bring you glory. In your holy name we pray. As we've talked about lostness in the sermon, I want to connect the sermon to life application and, and redeeming our present situation for God's glory. Jim Dennison says, God allows nothing that he's not intending to redeem. I don't know how God's going to redeem uh, the coronavirus, but I do know this. We're not alone. We're in this together. You and I, the rest of Christianity, but most importantly, God is with us through all of this. And we also know, as Christians, we're not afraid to die. But we only have today to get ready. We only have today to help other people uh, get ready, other people we love. And so we got to forgive. We've got to make things right with God if we're not living according to His will and His word. And we most certainly got to share Him with as many people as we can, especially those in our, our oikos. And so 
I want you to do a couple of things in applying this sermon on lost. First and foremost is, is check on your oikos and see how they're doing. It's a perfect time just to call them and say, hey, I just want to know how you're doing physically. Can I, can I bring you groceries? You got enough groceries? Can, uh, is everything okay? How you doing emotionally? Are you, uh, how's, how you dealing with the fear of all of this, the panic of all of this? Uh, and, and most importantly, how are you doing spiritually? Because the, the greatest lostness is spiritual lostness. The worst lostness is spiritual lostness. Can, can you imagine what it would be like to, to face these days without the ultimate hope we have in Jesus Christ? And not knowing Him personally. And, and as we look at, at uh, how we can minister to other people, the, the greatest thing we can do is help them not be eternally lost and share what Jesus has done for them. They are more open now <laughs> to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and all that He's done than they, they were two weeks ago. Wouldn't you agree? They're more open to eternal issues than they were uh, two weeks ago. So call them and check on them. And then, then prepare yourself. Just prepare yourself by, by knowing how to share the words of your story. Really, that's the greatest witnessing tool you have is just identifying what you've seen, what you have heard, and what you've experienced and sharing that with other people. But there's some, some simple things like we do all the time. The ABCs, we do it at Kids Beach Club, but we also do it in our service all the time. Admitting that we need a Savior, admitting that we're, we're sinners and we're separated from God. Believing in what Jesus has done for us on the cross is the B of the ABCs. Now he's covered all our sins and then choosing to follow him, to give him our lives, to ask him to come in and be in charge. There's other uh, avenues to share your faith like a one verse evangelism, Romans 6.23 is a great verse, John 3.16, we'll talk more about those things later, how to share Jesus without fear. Some of those things are real important that we have the words to share with them, but most importantly, we've got to, got to have the care, the desire to make sure our Oikos knows what's so important to us, that we can trust. Jesus through these difficult moments, through all moments in life. I want to close with a, a story I heard some 20 years ago at the Evangelism Conference. A guy named John Avant, who is, uh, was then the pastor of Coggan Avenue Baptist Church in, in Brownwood, and actually a, a boyhood pastor of Cameron King, who just spoke in our services last week. And he shared the story about Philip Simmelweis. Simmelweis, I think is how the the Germans or the Austrians might say it. Simmelweis was a doctor in the 1840s and he uh, made many advances in germ theory. And, and a lot of them were rejected by his colleagues. But Simmelweis had, had seen a connection between the common practice of the day. When doctors would go on duty, they would go uh, to the morgue and they would perfect their surgical techniques or their um, knowledge of anatomy and physiology through doing autopsies. But many of them left there directly and went to the land of the living and never even washed their hands. 
because they don't know anything about germ theory at that point in the history of medicine. Well, Semmelweis um, pointed that out and the rate of women dying from something called childbed fever went from one in six women to one in 50 women simply by washing his hands. I want to share just a quote of his about this when he shared with his colleagues. He says, childbed fever is caused by decomposed material conveyed to a wound. I've shown how it can be prevented. I have proved all that I have said. While we talk, 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 gentlemen, women are dying. I'm not asking anything world-shaking. I'm merely asking you only to wash. For God's sake, wash your hands. Well, folks, I, I want to make sure if you're lost, that you do exactly that. You wash not just your hand, but you be washed in the precious blood of Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to give you a fresh start with Him. And if you're saved, that you help other people become washed in that same blood. So when we think about uh, how we deal with the lostness and the situation in our world, it's so important, first and foremost, that we be washed, but that we also help others along the way. For God's sake, wash. I'll leave you with this text. Titus 3, 5, and 6. He saved us. Not because of the righteous things that we had done, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We are not alone. He's with us. God bless you. Go change this world, your world.